You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. The last time I had my guest, Pei on was six years ago to talk about her work with Nomi Network. After spending seven years based in Cambodia and India, she's relocated to the U.S. Last week, we got caught up and talked about what she's learned from her experience working with Nomi Network and how she's come to see herself as an entrepreneur. She also shared some thoughts on how to navigate parent-child relationships. Welcome to the podcast, Supay. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Great. So let's start with the big question. What have you been up to since we last had you on? Like, what's been going on with you and Nomi Network? Um, I feel like everything else before 2020 in comparison also is so small at this point. Um, I guess the <laughs> I guess the biggest topic of 2020 um, would definitely be a lot of corona and uh, how the corona is not just impacting us, but how is that impacting? Um, but um, of course, before this, uh, tons has um, has happened. So I guess um, we just have to unpack a little bit <laughs> with yeah. all the questions potentially you're going to ask me because uh, there's definitely a lot, a lot that has went on. So, but it, it's mostly good. It's mostly good. The last time I had you on Talking Taiwan was in 2014. What have been the major developments since 2014? Have there been any changes in terms of like um, how many people you have at the organization, mm -hmm. the types of work that you do? That the um, things that Nomi does yeah. have you changed what I you want, do or added things? I would say um, I think I think the biggest learning is really up to 2014 was was learning how to do things ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of learning of how to work with the community and uh, what are the communities really need. Mm -hmm. Not giving them what we think they need, but it's really about listening and understanding. And then, of course, um, I would say up to 2014, um, it's really about figuring out what our organizations um, should be focusing on. And I think we all started with uh, with ideas and uh, and then whether those ideas are feasible or not in the content of different cultures, different language. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then obviously working with people with different backgrounds. So so there were a lot of learning. Um, and, and of course, as a, as a foreigners, um, landed in India not speaking the language and uh, not only not speaking the language, but uh, living in a quite remote area where electricity and water sometimes um, you don't have a regular supply of it. Um, it's to, um, you know, you, you have to learn a lot of things from locals. And, uh, and I just remember really hearing the feedback and the comments from many of the staff that from our partner organizations, um, what they feel and then what they have observed. Um, and of course, tons of them are challenges. And, uh, and, uh, and then I think part of me, I would say the biggest learning lesson was not always just take people's words for it. Mm -hmm. You really have to experience it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, because 
a lot of limitations that I have learned the um, the clients or the community couldn't overcome. It wasn't because of limitation of their unwillingness. It was the limitation of the people. Is I would say it's more of a limitation for organization like us who say we're going to help, but are we willing to really commit? Are we really doing what we say we're going to do? Or we're simply saying so other people, so we feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that, that is, um, and I think that's a huge learning experience to see, um, wow, the, the, the clients and also, um, the community that we work with actually have a lot of potential and they actually have a lot of willingness mm-hmm. uh, to commit mm-hmm. uh, to change their life. So, um, and I think those were really the experience I gained from that. And then as well as um, really asking a tough question is because the reality is um, we taught, I would say, um, I per- personally, when I stay there, I was teaching 21 myself. And then from there, within two years, uh, we were able to, um, I would say, uh, replicate that training method mm-hmm. uh, more group. So by 2014, we probably have trained, I would say, about 60, um, 60 women. Yeah. So, um yeah, the, the, the challenge we face is that now we train them, so who is going to employ them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and as a result, we decided, like everybody else, uh, many other organizations, uh, to set it up um, a manufacturer to employ them. And, uh, and then that was, uh, that was really the second um, um, uh, sort of a social, uh, social entrepreneur, social company. Um, I, we set it up. To the purpose is really to employ these women, and uh, so we will create various products. And uh, you probably have seen some of those products that we saw on the website and early on, especially. Uh, and later on, um, we sell through the Union Square Holiday Market, and uh, and then those many of those products are made by uh, our women in India. Mm-hmm. So, and they're still so, doing that now. Um, they're still doing it. Yeah, yeah. this year they were making a mask. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that was going, but, uh, but then, um, I think in a couple of years, since I would say up to 2016, um, mm-hmm. and 2017, and then we realized we hit a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottleneck was, um, in order to continue to really, uh, train more women, mm-hmm. um, we have to create more employment opportunity. Right. And, uh, more employment opportunity mm-hmm. also means that, uh, we will have to generate more sales. Right. Uh, without without more sales right. is going to be harder to employ more people. Right. Um, and uh, and then of course running a business versus mm-hmm. running a non for profit mm-hmm. is two very different business right. models. Right. So um, so part of I would say the next three years journey um, it was really about learning. Mm-hmm. Learning we are are we a business company mm-hmm. or are we a not-for-profit that our goal and our aim is really to provide services mm-hmm. and people who can come out of a really tough situation. Mm-hmm. What so, was the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is uh, mm-hmm. we are much better 
at uh, running a program and create program and empower these women so they can transition into some job and uh, also uh, a proper employment. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's very commendable that you guys try to address the entire chain, which is from the training to the job opportunities to so forth. Um, so does that mean that you decide to focus more on the training and then maybe partner with other local businesses or places where they could be employed? Yes, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what we decide to do. And uh, and so that was obviously a huge tradition. But in addition, in addition, mm-hmm. what we also realized is that in order to reach more um, communities, and uh, we couldn't, we can't just keep doing this ourselves because to gain a trust and then to, um, to, have access to the community so you can actually get to the people that you want to serve, um, it requires time to build trust. And and then that is not something you can go in and then say, hey, I'm here, and then they're just going to come. Um, so we so we realized that uh, the best way for us to, to establish that um, is to, um, to work with with the local organizations that have been working in those communities for a long period of time. So, so in addition to identify private sector partners where the women can transition into employment, we also acknowledge that we need to work with local partners and to replicate as well as to, um, to expand our training program. So, yeah. So we change in multiple directions, uh, basically from direct implementation to to a lot of partnerships. Basically, it sounds like you um, narrowed down what you guys are better at doing rather than trying to mm-hmm. do everything. Um, yeah. And um, it was interesting what you said. I don't know if you, earlier if you could give an example of that, but you said something like, um, when you have, you can have a lot of ideas, but then when it comes mm. to implementing it in another country, like in a foreign country with different language, different culture, it may not be that easy to implement because of different factors, right? Because, you know, we can think that we want to do this from our American mindset and all this, but then when you bring it to India or Cambodia, like, is it really feasible? Of course. Yeah. And, um, and he, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, um, the worldview, you know, like how each culture mm-hmm. have a different perception. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, grow, when you live in a country, certain country for so long, you don't, you just assume, um, mm-hmm. everybody thinks like you. And until, of course, uh, a rude awakening to realize that people don't think like you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then, of course, I have to go, to really extreme the opposite uh, culture to um, to learn that um, is that we have a, such a you know we love to have a checklist of to do we love to be productive and then we love to to reward ourselves with how efficient and how much we accomplish and uh, that doesn't always work mm. that's not always the reward um, where you work with with people outside of, you know, I, I would even say just, you know, America, not necessarily in those Desolate community, but um, success is very different. You mm. know, success, the definition of success is so different in the culture. Mm. And, uh, and then 
And then one thing I also learned is, you know, staying in oldest community, yes, they have limited resource and then many of them are, um, you know, are really the life that dealt them with a terrible card. Um, but the reality is they are not necessarily less happy than we are. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I, know, mm-hmm. I, know, I know we have this perception of they are the victims. Mm-hmm. You know, their, yeah. their life is miserable. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is tough. You know, life has dealt them with a really tough hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes I see a lot more smiles on their face. And then there is more contentment. So little things will bring such a joy, such a joy to their life. And, uh, and I think that's one thing I actually learn, uh, from them is that it doesn't, my life is, is, is fulfilled, not because all the material things or all the ideology or the dreams that, you know, or I certain accomplishments or things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and then, and then I realized that I don't need to make a huge promises, you know, um, but what I learn is simply be honest with them, you know, and because most of their life, they don't have people who can actually be honest and then just be honest with them. And, uh, and then because, and then the truth is we, we can't solve everybody's problem, but a lot of time they just want someone to listen to their problem. You know, um, and right now I'm actually um, doing some writing and I realized one of the things I learned the most is that I truly, we truly have more commonality than they do, uh, um, you know, despite all the education backgrounds and uh, language difference, we really have more commonality. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I just realized I took a different turn of your question. No, no, <laughs> actually, that's very interesting because... Um, yeah, you think that you need to, um, we, yeah, I think like the U.S., we always have this, like you said, this checklist or like we feel like we need to deliver and we need to make promises. But I mean, is it like, yeah, what's worse, making a lofty promise that you maybe cannot fully deliver on or doing something simpler yeah. and being accountable and telling them, you know, what is going on and this is what we're trying to do little by little and yeah. and honoring your word, you know, so that's that's a very interesting thing that you point out um, because sometimes it's better just to take smaller steps and to be accountable, right? Yeah, well, small step is where you eventually finish the marathon, right? Mm-hmm. It's every step leads to the next step and uh, the next thing you know, you finish the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> you could be in a lot of pain, Uh <laughs> And, uh, and then I think, yeah, I would say that's one thing, um, if in, you know, myself journey of working with these, uh, women is that it is okay to, you know, um, they are so much more forgiving, um, not, you know, me not able to achieve certain things versus myself because, I think I, you know, I was brought up in the environment that um, my self-worth is is depending on the accomplishment, right? Um, and so it was, it was very interesting uh, how they have 
so much more grace and forgiveness um, <laughs> when I did not fulfill the promises or when the sales did not come through um, or a certain thing that I thought was going to, you know, happen and then did not happen. Um, and it was really incredible. It was really incredible learning um, journey, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine if I was in your shoes, I might be quite disappointed with myself or or being hard on myself, thinking like I didn't reach this goal that I was trying to achieve or whatever. But then, you know, the people that you're turning, turning, trying to help, their reaction is actually quite gracious and being like, well, that's, that's okay. Yeah. And then, and then because for them, the fact that I was willing to be there mm-hmm. and that meant the world for them, you know, um, and I just, uh, and then I think that really set a tone for me to come back. Um, this year I decided to come back, um, after I would say seven years of living abroad, um, to come back and just to, so have the ability to work with my, uh, U.S. team a little bit closer. And, uh, and then now I'm just at the place of constant reminding them of the, you know, the, the clients, the ultimate customers we're serving, you know, because it's so easy that we don't see them on a daily basis because they're so far away from us. Um, and versus when you are here, you know, um, and uh, we, we hear our donors, we hear the needs um, of in America and everything. Uh, but um, I'm always reminded of, um, you know, it, the, 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 the people that, you know, I, I work with and, uh, and ultimately, um, they really don't ask much, you know, mm-hmm. um, but just a lot of time it's our commitment, uh, right. just to be there. Yeah. It's our commitment to be there. Mm. Um, would you be able to share like, uh, maybe a little bit more personal story of, um, some woman that you work with that, um, you really, saw how she was um how she how she was helped by your services or how she um grew or changed or any anything more specific oh yeah um i i think this um this year is is a lot of uh i would say revelation almost almost like wow with <laughs> how how did i get here um, when the world is kind of turning upside down a little bit. Um, and of course, we have to make some changes. And, uh, and then these are, you know, uh, one of them is called Renu and, uh, and then the other one is called Ghani. Um, and these are two, uh, very close to my heart. And, uh, because, um, they are part of those 20 is what I call the original. Um, it started with me in 2012. And, uh, and Renu and both Renu and Ghani, um, were illiterate and then they never had the opportunity to go to school. And a part of it because they're cast and a part of it just extreme poverty of their family. And, uh, so, and I still remember, um, Renu and both, you know, both of them couldn't really write. And, uh, one of the requirements, and it's a very simple requirement, um, is to, for them to learn how to write. And, uh, part of it is write, how to write their name. Um, uh, because your name in many ways is your identity. Uh, and prior to when we started, um, they would use the thumbprint. But for me, 
a thumbprint did not say who your identity are, but when you have the power to write down your name, you know, or see what you write. Um, so throughout the years, and of course, we learned, uh, and the Renu used to be really shy, and she couldn't even hold a pencil because she didn't know how. So I just remember holding her hand and, uh, and then start writing that. Um, and uh, uh, long story short, and uh, this year, well, Renu and uh, Agani throughout the years, um, they became the trainer of our program. Wow. Not, um, and uh, because obviously they went through this whole process with us. And, uh, and then opportunity also uh, came for us to set up programs somewhere else. And, uh, and then they were brave enough to say, hey, I'm willing to leave my house and then go to this place to train. So gradually they were, you know, they grow with us and we grow with them and then they became our trainer. Um, and then what I was also most impressed is they also start using smartphones. So mm. they will communicate with me via WhatsApp. <laughs> Just simple. I mean, simple English. Amazing. But it's, it's truly amazing. And I love it when they use emojis and they would. <laughs> They will pick different color emoji to represent their color skin. And, uh, and then what also we did this year is, uh, instead of stopping our program training completely, uh, we did actually a virtual trial. So what we did is we select, um, uh, new participants with access to smartphone. So they were able to do our training through uh, through their, basically Zoom and uh, via their smartphone at their home. Um, and uh, Renu and Gahani were both the trainers. Wow. Um, you know, so they learned how to use, how to log in Zoom and how to operate and how to play video. <laughs> and I was quite impressed. And, yeah, that's uh, so and impressive the, from not being able to write scary. their names to being your trainers and doing things on Zoom. Yeah. That's a and success can, story. Oh, total. <laughs> so that really, I will say, um, you know, it was not just blow my mind. I was just so proud, so impressed by it. Yeah. So, you yeah. should be proud. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. That's wonderful. You guys should have things like that up on your website about success stories or, you know, how, like, some of your um, – the women that you're working with, how they've, um, what they've learned and how they've grown. That would be amazing. Um, and so you touched a little bit about, um, I'm, that's probably because of the pandemic that you guys had to use Zoom and all that. Is there any other way that the pandemic affected what Nomi does and changed how you guys do things? Well, I think um, when things like this happen, um, you ask, you know, we ask ourselves, um, what is the most relevant things for the community at this point, right? Um, obviously, um, at the beginning, there were there there were a lot of fears and a panic, right? Uh, and there is uh, there is a shortage because um, you know there's a lockdown in India as well, so people couldn't really go to a market to get food. There's a, there's a lack of food. So after that, and then we were kind of asking ourselves what it is that we can actually do. 
Um, so, and so one thing we realize is very important is with the community uh, we work with, they often don't have the accurate information. Um, the, and uh, so when there was no trusted information that going into the community, what people start doing is they start spreading rumors and then creating this whole false information or narrative and uh and then out of that that's where kind of chaos you know was created um so we wanted to um we wanted to make sure that we can deliver the most accurate information to the community so what we end up doing is we um because you know um at that time and this is around i would say april um, the most accurate information at that time coming is from WHO. So, and uh, and then we have contact um, with WHO in India. So we basically were able to take those information and uh, and then really just quickly uh, translate that into the local regional dialogue that um, we work with. And uh, and then also because in the past we have so many graduates. And, uh, and then out of those graduates, we look at the criteria. For example, one thing about the COVID is obviously the standard of hygiene, right? And, uh, and then the basic understanding of prevention is quite critical and as well as follow instructions. So we basically look into our past graduate and identify, um, I would say, uh, by the time we went through this whole program, we had about 250. 240, wow. uh, we call them the community outreach workers who met those criteria. And then we were able to train them uh, quite quickly. And then also, so they 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 became our contact tracer and frontline workers um, in 30 days. And uh, so they became, they we were able to deploy them with the information. And uh, also, and then so they basically go to each household with the community that we work with and then to start tracking if there are any migrants uh, coming back from the, especially with the large urban city, because the whole India was shut down. So people were stranded and they were riot because people wanted to get home and they don't know how to. And then the challenge is most of these um, virus were actually being brought back from the large cities, right? Um, and so, so we want to know if there are anyone coming back from, especially from the large city and the urban area that potentially could carry this. And as well as we trace if there's any kind of symptoms. Um, so, and also, and at the same time, um, and our, um, our community outreach workers were able to share the the accurate information and then demonstrate them how to wash their hands and making sure people are actually washing hands with soap because in community like this they will they were they they are believed that you know you can wash your hands with your with your fan and that that's sufficient right so and then be like you know fan does not clean your hands <laughs> but uh so, so stuff like that. So um, I think by now um, we did a, a calculation. We in since May um, to up to this point, we were able to reach over one hundred and sixty thousand people. Wow! Um, 
you know, with uh, yeah, with two hundred forty community outreach workers as well as our staff. That's impressive. Yeah, Yeah. that's really impressive. It sounds like Nomi really took on responsibility for this, um, because I was just thinking in terms of like, how does it affect your operations or your business? But you guys really took ownership of this and um, sought to create awareness and educate people. Um, That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Uh, I also just um, wanted to talk to you a little bit about like yourself and your career path. We we spoke um, a little bit before this, and we were talking about entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about like what was your upbringing like, and then um, when did you realize that you're um, an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur, and like your your career path up to this point. Um, can we talk a yeah. little bit about like your upbringing? Sure. Yeah, I think I shared this with you. I grew up in Taiwan until I was sixteen, mm-hmm. and then I moved to America. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely a, I'm definitely an immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I used to try to figure out whether I'm the first generation. I'm like, now I'm an immigrant um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's a there's a lot of value. Um, there's a lot of cultural. Uh, definitely, as I reflect back in my life now. Uh, it was shaped, um, you know, in my early days of, uh, you know, upbringing. So I think um, typically when I came here, my, um, I would say my my career pursuit was really, um, you know, follow the safe path, the, the climb the corporate ladder and, <laughs> and uh, getting that steady paycheck, you know, because you, you come here to, to be secure, to be successful, right? And uh, and then the size of a paycheck in many ways define that success. Um, so I was doing that, I would say, for a good 12 years in fashion industry and uh, and then in New York. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the really change, uh, I would say, came in about 2008 um, when I realized that there is no job is secure uh, <laughs> and uh, and then I think there is no such a thing as security um, and then paychecks yeah it's good but that doesn't mean it's always going to be there um, and then I think there was also um, a, a, I would say a, a deeper look of um, what it is is that I desire because I think growing up um, in an Asian culture that um, you know you're kind of like follow what people tell you to do right because uh, it wasn't a culture of um, encourage at least not my family background to be creative to follow your heart so that's not something you're going to hear ever is <laughs> you make the logical and rational decisions. You do what is right. You follow what the mainstream norm is. <laughs> you don't. You don't go and become that black sheep. You just don't. Um, so, and uh, even though I think they were a little bit of that rebelliousness, um, you know, in me, um, actually, probably a lot. Uh, but I always try to follow that sound voice. <laughs> I was taught. I was trained. 
Um, but I would say 2008 was definitely a, one of those turning points, just realized that following that traditional path was not working for me. So, um, so they, um, then I would say the last, uh, my, my journey of starting Know Me, um, and, uh, was really a radical departure from that traditional path. Can you talk a bit about how your family reacted to your work with Nomi Network? Well, I think um, my mom was, well, I have a very progressive mom. Mm. So she, um, you know, she is a single mom. So she raised me uh, by herself. So she's quite progressive for her, uh, for her time. Um, she, um, she was a little confused at first when I started, <laughs> but she really tried to hold her tongue. Um, and, uh, and I think now, um, she's quite proud, of course, because she finally understood what I was trying to do. Um, and, uh, early on, she just tried to support me as the best she could. Um, but yeah, but now she understood. So, and then we have a great conversation. She actually uh, moved to Cambodia and lived with me for, for three years. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So she, she was enjoying it. She she learned and she saw firsthand. That's so special. So your, your relationship must've really grown in that time. Because she's um, one of the oh, few people that really could um, appreciate and experience what you are doing. Yeah, not only that, but because of us living together, and uh, we were able to really work through a lot of uh, sort of uh, the typical challenge um, uh, as Asian parents have their have with their children. You know, so um, so I, I'm very blessed that I have a mother who's willing to listen. You know, I, I'm very lucky with that. So for sure. So um, she got me thinking. I got her thinking. And uh, and then um, so a lot of our conversation is not just about the weather talk. It's actually deep conversation, which is, is great. It's truly great. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, not that many people get that. It's kind of like a second chance to work through uh, maybe some parent-child um, relationship oh, issues. Totally. <laughs> we, are, we are a result of our parents' product. I mean, there's no, you know, I think a lot of us either trying to be our parents or try not to be our parents. But at the end of the day, um, you are absolutely influenced by your parents. Whether yeah, you that's want- your first role model. How can yeah. you not be? Yeah, and uh, but the thing is, we carry that baggage, you know, um, and then we never set ourselves free from it. Uh, sometimes it's because our parents' expectations, and then sometimes it's also we just didn't know how to set ourselves free. So uh, without, you know, without uh, disrespecting our parents or without, and so so that I think is is very very tough um, as as Asian uh, children is that. You grow up with the with the with the value of really respect your parents, honor them, and to make sure to take care of them. Uh, versus, you know, American culture don't always do that. Um, but sometimes those expectations also help, you know, um, the growth and the opportunity for the children for the next generation to pursue ultimately what they are designed for. You know, and I and I think that's the that that's the tension often between Asian parents and their children. Yeah. Wait, wow, thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so interesting um, because it, there's, a, there's a two ends because one is um, what the parent is expecting of the child, but then how the child receives it too, right? Yeah, if, you know, there is a, I think there was one conversation was really tough with my mom. And, uh, and then, um, man, I'm going to share with you. So perhaps some of your listeners might benefit from it. Thank you. Um, and so, so a lot of Asian parents raise their kids and, uh, unwillingly they have expectations from their kids. And, uh, that expectation could be financially. That expectation could obviously making sure that when I'm getting older, you are here to take care of me, right? Um, and then that puts obviously burdens uh, for your children. And uh, and then my mom does, you know, have have that, even though she is very progressive. So, and one example is that um, when she was staying in Cambodia with me, and uh, and of course she was living with me, and I support her financially. So, and then one time I was coming back to U.S., so she was asking me for, you know, so she asked me uh, for money. And uh, and I was a little quiet, and I didn't immediately respond it. And then so she commented to me, she's like, oh, it was always so difficult to get money from you. And then you always gave me attitude. And versus when you were growing up, I gave you whatever you asked. You ask of. And, uh, and I... And when I listened to that, and uh, and then I, there was part of me, it was just very frustrated because, and I turned around, and this is what I say to, to say to my mom, and I wouldn't encourage you guys to do this to your parents unless you know. Um, I say to my mom, and I say, I didn't choose to give birth to me. You did. You made that choice to have me. And uh, you made that choice to raise me, which I am internally grateful. So, but I don't owe you. I, I just don't owe you. And, uh, but I love you. I will give you money because I love you, not because of I owe you. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the act might be the same, but the intention is completely different. So I want to give because I love you. I want to give, not because of I owe you. Uh-huh. And that is two very different acts of giving. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, and unfortunately, most, I think, um, Asian children are under the influence of, you know, this, un, you know, unspoken words of they owe their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah. Is, which is unfortunately, the baggage, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Asian children mm-hmm. carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was not such a bad way to address it because you were saying you wouldn't encourage people to say that. But I like <laughs> what you said is because I love you, so I would give it to you. But yeah, it's uh, guilt is it's not good to like guilt people <laughs> or um, into it's doing not, things. But yeah. Asian parents are very good with putting guilt, right? You know, and yeah. uh, and and I think it's because of what they are used to, right? Mm. Uh, and especially grew up in the Asian yeah. community is that if you don't follow the norm, if you don't follow, you know, if you don't do this and don't do that, mm-hmm. and then it, it's this invisible guilt, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and place on you. And cultural expectations that you take care of your Always. parents and all that. Yeah. Interesting. Thank Always. you so much for sharing that. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> How did your mom react when you said that? 
my mom was quiet and uh and uh and I think um right after that um I actually had to take a trip so I was gone for a good month mm-hmm. and uh, and then I would say after I went back um my mom and I actually had a conversation and then and uh and then um yeah I think she processed it um okay. I forgot exactly what she said she didn't come out admit I was right because that's just not her style mm. but she said it in an indirect way meaning she understood mm. <laughs> <laughs> so have you noticed like um you and her relationship with money has changed now oh yeah I mean it got better I say yeah so I think we um yeah, we we definitely got better with that. And uh, she and I also I'm stepping up a little bit more and willing to kind of be more involved mm-hmm. in her finance mm-hmm. management mm-hmm. versus before mm-hmm. I, you know, I just kind of uh, say I was too busy and I didn't want to mm-hmm. be involved. Mm-hmm. But now I'm definitely taking a more active part. Mm-hmm. So making sure that she's going to be okay, and I'm going to be okay. And but at the end, you know, we are all going to be okay. Yeah. So yeah. So, so my responsibility is not just about, you know, I'm taking her money, but it's really, you know, and, uh, and, and then kind of like sharing ideas and sharing how, you know, things can be managed. Um, and the one thing I gave her a lot of credit is she's definitely listening more mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm, more. Mm-hmm. She would always feel like she's the parent. So she knows better. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Versus now she definitely is more open to my suggestion, which give her a lot of credit for that. Well, yeah, that's actually one thing I was going to mention because it's very interesting how um, the roles actually reverse as we get older, right? Because when we're oh, kids, our parents yeah. take care of us, but then as they get older, they may need more um, assistance or whatever. So sometimes the roles kind of revert, reverse. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And uh, and it's not, you know, and, and also in a way, it's just like, you know, the world is changing too. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's just like the, the things that change so fast. Yeah. And, uh, and the knowledge, like sometimes they, with that. yeah, sometimes these young kids know more than us. Right. So it's like, that's a total role reversal. Yeah. Cause the technology yeah. and all the information. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, I will, you know, I would suggest people always say, you know, there's, there's always wisdom comes with the age, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just because your parents might not necessarily know the latest thing. It doesn't mean they don't know. They just have a different knowledge that it might. But but wisdom is wisdom, you know. So and I think my approach with my mom is always now it's more like, you know, we will discuss and uh, and uh, and then. And then so we will both agree that, okay, it makes more sense. So, and of course, I'm looking into, you know, like 10, 20 years, right? Versus she is looking at what she needs now because she's in retirement age, right? And it's to understand the differences of needs. Uh, and I think those are something is very important instead of a, instead of a typical way would be like, oh no, I take care of it. You don't know what you're doing. And then versus like, okay, let's have a discussion. And I'm very lucky in a way, like my mom is physically healthy and mm-hmm. then she's mentally capable. Uh, so we can actually have a healthy discussion. So, yeah. Wonderful. So that was my approach. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that. We kind of went off on a tangent, but I think that's interesting to address yeah. to be useful for people to hear. Oh, right. my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Relationship with your parents, always yeah. useful. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a bit about when you realized that you were an entrepreneur? 
the, the whole realization of entrepreneur, I have to say, is, is it didn't really occur to me until recently because I always admire people who become entrepreneur because in my mind, I always thought entrepreneur is someone who actually creates something that makes money. So, and uh, even up to my 40s, and that's what I believed uh, because I never went to entrepreneur school and uh, I I just thought, okay, entrepreneur me, you create something and then we'll start something, and then, but you make money out of it. So the fact that I started a not-for-profit, I never considered myself an entrepreneur. Uh, but I said, um, you know, the, the early um, sort of uh, the, that the concept started to change. I would say it's about two, three years ago when I met this really uh, quite successful entrepreneur. And, uh, and then he redefined the entrepreneurism in a different term. He said entrepreneur is not a pursuit of money. It's pursuit of solving problems. So, and I, and I really like that definition. And, uh, and then I think, then I start realize I have in the last, I would say, um, you know, more than 10 years now is in the path of solving problems. And uh, it started with, you know, um, know me, of course, is setting on nonprofit is how to address the whole human trafficking and then to creating um, a manufacturing center in the rural part of India to create jobs. Um, and, uh, and, then, and I think I shared with you a little bit um, prior to our conversation was then um, about five, six years ago, I also set it up a fashion incubator in Cambodia to basically promote the entrepreneurism and as well as, um, 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 you know, just the uh, opportunity for them, uh, for many of the leaders over there to be connected with the buyers and the retailer in America. So, so, and I realized my entrepreneurism started a lot earlier than I actually gave myself credit for. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, because there's a, like you said, entrepreneurship is not necessarily about the monetary uh, return. There's also so social entrepreneurship and the commonality is that entrepreneurs are people that are solving some kind of problem that's out there, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and you actually, you actually, um, I think you mentioned that you um, also tried some other types of um, businesses um, while you're in India or Cambodia, you mentioned um, the cashew distillery. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Oh my goodness. I, I have, I constantly have ideas going through my head. My, my issue is I can't do it all, but I constantly have ideas. <laughs> so, um, and uh, so one thing cool about, um, you know, staying in Cambodia is um, there's just a lot of uh, entrepreneurism. And uh, because there's very little established corporation, so for people who to generate income in general is entrepreneurism, and that can start from you know being a little seller in the market, having your own little stands, and uh, and then to actually creating your own distillery. So uh, so I did not create my own distillery, uh, but uh, but the thought was there, but. What happened is um, one of the biggest um, sort of uh, 
really, I would say, problem I want to wanted to solve is how do we create jobs, right? And uh, agriculture is still a huge part of everyday um, life, in especially outside of the city of uh, Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia. So, and then whenever I go to um, uh, the rural area, and then I will see um, uh, different agricultural, different fruits, and uh, different, you know, different different product being produced. Um, but yet, I still see um, farmers facing a lot of challenges. And uh, so, so after some conversations, and uh, and I realized cashew were actually being grown in Cambodia, and uh, the quality of cashew was truly amazing so um it's one of the top great and uh and in some of the neighboring countries for example like uh, thailand and vietnam actually have to collect raw cashew from cambodia and then to finish the product and uh, for export um so and then one thing i also realized well out of cashew um this cashew apple which rarely anybody heard about so, and the cashew apple to nut ratio is actually nine to one, meaning every one kg of cashew nuts is actually nine kg of apple. Cashew so the, apple being produced. The cashew plant actually produces an apple? Yes, cashew fruit. Huh. So it tastes, you know, it looks like kind of like a, a pear a little bit, uh-huh. but it's a cashew fruit and it's huh. actually pretty significant. But the challenge is it's not a very tasty fruit, mm. so nobody uses it. Oh. And uh, and then as soon as the oso is dropped, uh, it starts fermenting very quickly. Oh. So um, so what I um, so after some research, I actually decided to collect tons of uh, fruit mm-hmm. and to see if I can do something about it. Okay. And uh, one of the things is I actually end up creating liquor. Oh, out of the interesting. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I partnered with a distillery actually uh-huh. create a whole batch of um uh yeah, cashew fruit liquor. Um so I yeah, I was able to turn that into, you know, some of them just basically uh, sort of uh, a flavorless like a vodka, uh, you know, alcohol uh-huh. and some of them we I was able to um age them. It's actually um, quite tasty. Oh, yeah, great. it's kind of like a whiskey and scotch. <laughs> oh, great. So are you going to see that coming to the U.S.? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. But that's definitely in one of my pockets. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, maybe if I can find some potential investors <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and people who just love, love uh, who have a passion to do the celery. Hey, maybe some of your listeners will be interested and reach out to me. <laughs> well, it is a, that is a recession-proof uh, product, I'm sure. <laughs> well, if anything is, uh, and it, it, I think the business increased. <laughs> and, I, and I love it, stuff like that because uh, it is so beautiful to be able to see literally the product, the end product from the beginning to the yeah, end. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of uh, reminds me part of my, um, my journey in the fashion. And one of the, one of the challenges toward the end of my uh, career in fashion industry is the supply chain became so complicated. Uh, you don't know 
where the thread or you know any of the materials were made mm-hmm. uh, but when you do um, aquacultural supply when you when you involve an aquaculture type of product and also uh, experience the living closer to where the source are um, the ability to see supply chain so clearly yeah. actually very rewarding yeah yeah because you can see the impact right not just the impact, but you can also see clearly what is involved and each chain and where the end product, source. every single part of where it came from. Yeah. Wonderful. So in your career path so far, what would you say have been some of your like proudest accomplishments or most memorable experiences? Oh, um, I think earlier, you know, we, we kind of talk about seeing the, uh, you know, seeing the outcome of it. Um, I think when I first started Nomi, you had an outcome to, you know, be, hey, you know, say, I want to see someone's life be transformed. I want to see someone be successful. But you have vague idea. And uh, when I first started, also, many of the matrix was success matrix is based it's often very quantitative based, meaning the number of people who complete the training, you know, and it, it wasn't, I think, yeah, it was, it's great to see a high number, but there is, but that satisfaction or knowing that um, someone actually really become um, successful, it, it's just different. So to be able to see, um, you know, the example like Renu and Gahani's life be so different from where they started. And I would say those moments are really incredibly profound. So, and I'm very, very lucky to be able to see that um, because I know many organizations and uh, work with years, you know, um, um, and uh, don't always, you know, necessarily see the outcome that we see in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how has what you do changed now that you're based in the U.S., and um, what direction is your, are you going now? Yeah, so so one of the reasons I wanted to um, come back is because um, I always have a very strong growth mindset um, because I challenge myself to always learn things, to learn new things. And, uh, and then living in India and in Cambodia in the last, I would say in the last seven, you know, seven years, um, I learned quite a bit. Um, and I challenged that with my team and with my staff. And then I think part of coming back is for me to learn. Um, because there is just incredible amount of resource and the wealth of the talent, um, um, you know, in America and, uh, also, just watching and uh, what is happening in America and especially with all the riots and uh, all the, you know, social uh, unrest, social unrest. uh, It was, it was, it was heartbreaking for me um, because I spent most of my life uh, at this point uh, outside of this country and then say I was going to help other people. Uh, What it is that I am doing um, for the country that hasn't given me so much opportunity. So, so part of it is to really come back, um, to just to listen, 
uh, to learn and to really understand what are the what are the issues, you know, and uh, maybe I can do my little part to help to address some mm-hmm. of those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so, have you thought about like? Um, well, I don't. I don't know if I should say this, but if yeah, how much longer you're going to continue with Nomi, or if you're going to do some things outside of Nomi, or if you have some other projects or entrepreneurial ideas, like are you working on anything outside of Nomi? Yeah. Well, I am. You know, since I embraced my entrepreneurial spirit, yes. <laughs> so um, I always have tons of projects in my idea. Now it's it's always it's. It, the time is always the issue. Um, I, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be with Nomi, but I think uh, Nomi is such a huge part of my life, uh, whether it's a full time or eventually in in the advisory or board member, some kind of capacity. I will always be involved, um, and uh, and then it's really hard for me to put a clear timeline on that. But I will say, whenever they are in a good position and whenever I feel it's time for me to let go, um, I just have to make sure I'm brave enough and courageous enough to step into another unknown, uh, another new territory and, uh, and then never be afraid to hold on to what I'm familiar with. And, uh, so I missed out the opportunity of embracing something new. Mm-hmm. So I would say that is the attitude I, I'm going to practice until the day that new opportunity comes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, but uh, do you have some projects that you're working on? I, I guess time is always a factor for all of us. But outside of Nomi, are you working on any other personal projects that you want to talk well, about? I am, yeah, I am working on um, writing my book. And, uh, and then that is something has been in my heart for a few years. Um, but I think this year I was able actually have finally had really had opportunity and time to just really build a lot of content and then really write, you know, right into the content. So I would definitely say that is my first immediate project. Um, I wanted to finish and, uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully the next time when we speak, um, <laughs> <laughs> a, I actually have something concrete to share. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so how can people learn about you? Um, is there any social media like um, would you like to share that people can connect with you? Um, or do you have a website or anything? Oh, I I am um, for now, I'm actually very active in social media. So I'm probably one of those um um, strange um, uh, one of those guests who's not very active um, so I would say the best way to um, to reach me is still through the Nomi Network website um, and I think from there um, you will contact you will get to me hopefully hopefully one day um, I will be more active in social media uh, because I always have the feeling of you know what, what what is it that I have to say that people haven't heard yet so oh, don't say that. Plenty, <laughs> plenty. You have a very interesting experience in all the things that you've done. Yeah. yeah. Lots to well, learn and share. Yep. So, so perhaps soon enough uh, then, yeah, for now, I think I'm, I'm 
pretty low key on social media. Is there anything else that you want to talk about in this interview, like to let people know or that you wanted to address? Well, I think um, I think ultimately, I just really want to uh, you know encourage people who, uh, if they are kind of wondering, you know, if there's something else out there for them, you know, uh, if what they are currently doing now, uh, do they feel trapped or do they feel kind of a you know dissatisfied? Yeah, dissatisfied. And I say, don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid. Um, even even if there's a fear, and then that is so normal. So um, just go out there um, when, even when you are fearful, um, you know, um, it is okay. And, uh, and I, I love uh, what, um, you know, this phrase uh, I always use now is, you know, the courage is not in the absence of fear, right? Um, so be courageous and take that first step. And then you'll be surprised what the next step is going to uh, is going to come up. So, the oh. next thing you know, you turn back and you have run twenty six miles, and uh, you can put it on. Well, thank you for those wonderful words of encouragement. Yeah, I love that. So, courage does not mean that there is an absence of fear, right? A lot of times, people who seem courageous they still have fear, and they still do it. That's what makes them courageous. Yep. 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 So yeah, and I, and I, if I didn't take those early steps in my life, um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be where I am here. And, uh, um, and then just uh, actually really enjoying life. And uh, how many people can actually say they love what they do? You know, and uh, I truly love what I do. It's not because it gave me satisfaction, but it's because it just, how I'm designed, you know, and how I am created. So, and it's a pretty cool place to be. So, yeah, not too many people can say that. So, thank you so much, Supe, for coming back on the Talking Town podcast. It's great to hear like what you've been up to since then and the uh, interesting directions that you're going to be going. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're more than um, welcome, and thank you for having me here. I've been speaking with Supe Liu about her work with Nomi Network, entrepreneurship, and navigating parent-child relationships. To learn more about Supe or Nomi Network, or to listen to my previous interview with her in episode 104, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or better yet, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.